I gotta be honest, this was not an episode I thought I'd be making. I had a plan, a structure for how I thought this was going to go. A few weeks back, I released the intro episode of the podcast, and I was planning on releasing episode one in the next few weeks. I was not planning on having a bonus episode before I even released episode one. But sometimes, things don't happen the way you imagine they would. Now, I want to preface everything I'm about to say by stating that I have chosen in this podcast to keep the name of my church anonymous. The reason for doing so is neither a fear of backlash nor a desire to spare them in any way. Trust me when I say I was very tempted to specify the name of my church and had actually resolved on doing so until about five minutes before recording. But the reason I have ultimately decided not to is the same reason why I didn't in my book. And that is that the story of my church and the people in it, while both deeply personal and unique, is not ours alone. The unfortunate reality is that the experiences that I and many others have gone through in our church have been and are continually being experienced by others in many, many other churches all over the world. And while there are of course individual elements that make each of our stories unique, I have found that so many of the foundational threads are universal and are shared between all of our individual stories. I chose not to specify the name of my church in my book out of the belief that my story could be anyone's and the things that I have experienced in my own church can and have been experienced by many others. And it is with that same mindset that I have chosen to keep it anonymous in this episode. That being said, given recent events, it wouldn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what church we're talking about, especially if you know me or the church in question. But with all that said, I think it's time to talk about why we're here. Last week, my church was accused of sexual abuse. Now, before going any further, I want to make sure I fully explain my current relationship to this church. I grew up in this church. It's where my parents met and what I was born into, and was the place I called home for a little over 18 years. During those 18 years, I, as well as many of my friends and peers, went through a lot. And growing up, many of us thought the things we were experiencing were normal. I won't spend a lot of time going into details here, but if you want to know more about that, you can listen to my first episode, episode zero, or you can read my book, A Jumble of Crumpled Papers, which discusses these experiences in greater detail. You can check it out at the link in the description. In short, by the time I got to college, I was starting to finally realize the detrimental effects some of these practices and ideologies I had grown up with were having on my life, my faith, my relationships, the list goes on. And so, during my sophomore year of college, I made the decision to leave. The rest of my family, my parents and two younger siblings, followed suit pretty soon after, as my parents were also heavily aware of the unhealthy culture surrounding our church. That was over four years ago. Since then, many of the friends and peers I grew up with have also left, each based on their own reasoning and experiences. And many of us have conversations pretty frequently about our experiences growing up. Not just the bad, of course, but also the fun, funny memories we've had over the years. But inevitably, especially as the years have gone on, those conversations most often tend to veer towards the many parts of our childhood church experiences that we have had to since process and work through, and in many cases unlearn. For so many of us, the way we view our church now is nowhere near how we viewed it when we were in it. 
One of the things I've learned is how hard it can be to discern the unhealthy parts of an environment when you are still adhering to it. It is only once you remove yourself from your circumstances that you can gain a more accurate and objective perception of it. And since leaving, the conversations I've had with people both in and out of the church have only validated my decision. So many things rooted in fear, enforced by shame, and ultimately summed up as something that I would never have imagined admitting to experiencing. Abuse. Four years detached, and it's still a difficult concept to come to terms with. For nearly the first two decades of my life, I grew up in an abusive environment. Just taking into account the experiences of myself and closer friends, we unwittingly spent years dealing with both subtle and overt instances of emotional, verbal, psychological, and perhaps most encompassing, spiritual abuse. Even now, as I sit here saying these things out loud, there's a part of me, a small voice in the back of my mind, saying, really? Was it really that bad? I gotta be honest, despite the severity of these things, for the majority of the time, it never felt that bad. Like I said, for those going through it, it was normal. And in an environment like that, something had to be really, really bad for it to actually seem off. Of course, now, being gone, all of these things shine in their true colors. But even once I was able to come to terms with the way I was brought up in church, I was still able to take solace in the fact that, in the grand scheme of things, my church experience was not that bad, especially when compared to the stories of other churches. During the year that I spent writing my book, I did a lot of research. I read tons of books, both data-driven about church history and more individual memoir-style writing. I watched tons of documentaries, news pieces, even YouTube videos about toxic churches and their abusive structures. And while extremely validating of my own experiences, it also made me aware of the fact that, to my knowledge, my church was on the much lower side of the spectrum when it came to this kind of abuse. I even mention as much several times in my book. And for the last four years, perhaps naively, I believed it. That is, until recently, when I started hearing murmurs of a potential sexual abuse lawsuit. Apparently, a leader in one of our sister churches under the same organizational church umbrella, had been accused by multiple people of sexual abuse when they were children. By the time I was hearing of it, it had happened a few months prior, and the leader had since resigned. A quick internet search unearthed two shocking truths to me that day. The first was that I had known this leader, though relatively impersonally. He was one of the heads of staff at our annual youth camps, and was known and loved by all the campers. I had only ever spoken to him once, but I had known him from a distance for years. That was the first shocking realization. The second came as I found his profile on Facebook. What I heard had been true. He had lost his leadership position in our church. What I didn't know was that he had already found another leadership position in a different church. I could hardly believe it. This person, who had just been accused by multiple people of childhood sexual abuse, was in a brand new leadership position at a new church, leading sermons on Facebook, almost as quickly as he had left the last. By the time I was hearing of all of this, it had seemed like this incident had come and gone. However, it was only a matter of weeks before I started hearing talks of more allegations. 
Apparently, the statute of limitations allowing adults to sue over childhood sexual abuse had temporarily been lifted and was in its final days before being put back into effect. In California, the deadline was extended, allowing victims even more time to come forward. And from what I was hearing, they were. At around dinner time on December 31st, New Year's Eve, an article was published on Rolling Stone explaining how a federal claim had been filed against my church and its affiliated organizations, accusing them of indoctrinating members into a rigid belief system that isolated them from the outside world, then facilitating and actively concealing incidents of sexual abuse and trafficking while they were minors. And it doesn't stop there. The article goes on to say the accusers claim, quote, The churches and their leaders created a system of exploitation that extracts any and all value it can from members, straining members financially while silencing any dissenters. Whew. Definitely not the way I imagined ringing in the new year. Reading the article that night, there was one thought recurring over and over in my head. This is my church. My church. Sure, I may not be a member there anymore. But it was where I grew up. It was where I learned about God for the first time. It was where I had made the decision to get baptized. It was where I had met the majority of my friends. And for the first two decades of my life was the foundation upon which my entire identity was founded. My church. The church that I had trusted. The church that I had given so much of myself to. And the place that I believed had my best interests and the best interests of those around me at heart. Now, in an article on Rolling Stone, accusing them of being a cult, of ignoring abuses of all kinds, and of running a pyramid scheme. Of course, by this time, I had already been made aware of the unhealthy ideologies and practices, but there was still that part of me not wanting to believe that it would be this bad. Because up until this point, I could still read the books, and watch the documentaries, and say to myself assuringly, at least my church wasn't that bad. But now I knew for an indisputable fact that it was. It was that serious. It was on that level. It was shocking, appalling, yet at the exact same time, it was incredible to me how something that I would never have imagined taking place at my church in a million years was simultaneously something that, once having happened, didn't surprise me in the slightest. Because truthfully, while it was hard for me to imagine something as serious as sexual abuse taking place at my church, I had already come to terms with the fact that it was an abusive environment, structured around fear, shame, and control. It was a system that praised blind trust and looked down upon the questioning of authority. It was a system that sowed into its members the soul-killing idea that you could never trust yourself, but only those placed in authority above you to guide your steps. And it was a system structured in such a way that anyone deciding to speak up against these harmful ideologies would be minimized, invalidated, and smushed back into submission, all while using God, Jesus, and the Bible as excuses for its own abuses of power. So no, I never would have imagined my church being responsible for something as serious as sexual abuse. But in a system structured to allow such a wide spectrum of other types of abuses, who would be surprised when it managed to go this far?
Once the article broke, it was all over social media by the next day. And because so much of my online community is made up of both current and past members of this church, it seemed like everyone was talking about it, especially among the groups of people who had left the church after being hurt and wounded and realizing that their voices seeking justice and change were not being heard. There's something almost harrowing about this type of news. This confrontation with how dark and broken your reality actually is. For some, this was a confirmation of their worst fears. For others, a distressing reality check. Yet, in the midst of this grim and deeply upsetting information, I have also witnessed three very powerful things. The first is the validation of those who may have long ago given up on the possibility of ever being validated about their church experiences. So many people who were silenced, minimized, and confused into doubting the legitimacy of their own story. The unfortunate reality is, the church is filled with these people. And it's not because we are a beacon of light in the dark, drawing in the broken. It is because in many cases, we have convinced people that they need our help. We pull them in and teach them how desperately they must rely on us, the church, if they desire to ever have a fulfilling relationship with God and a thriving faith. We destroy their sense of individuality and self by telling them they can never trust themselves. And we drill into them the idea that, should they ever deviate from the path directed to them by the church, they will surely incite their own destruction. We make them so desperately dependent on the church for the success and well-being of every aspect of their spiritual lives, in some cases many aspects of their personal lives as well, that they lose nearly all sense of independence and authority over their own lives and simply become a cog in the machine of their church. Then, once these abusive churches are confident that you won't stray from where they want you to go, they will use you. They will wring you dry of every valuable asset you have, whether it be your money, or your time, or your devotion, or simply your admiration and devotedness to their cause. They will attempt to squeeze every last drop of value that you have, all under the lie that everything you are doing and giving of yourself is for God. And eventually, after months for some, years for others, and decades for others still, there comes a point where you run dry, you burn out, you get hurt. In the best of cases, you begin to see what's happening and realize what God actually wants you to do and who he actually says you are. And it is at this point that an abusive church deems you valueless. So they ignore you or minimize you and ultimately make you feel like you failed. And not just the church. You failed God because you weren't strong enough, you weren't faithful enough, or you simply let the pull of the world draw you away. And many, many people believe it. So they leave. Or rather, the church spits them out because they have fulfilled their purpose and no longer have anything to offer them. And while it may take a day or a week for the church to find another bright-eyed, hopeful person seeking God's will for their life, it often takes the person they abused and abandoned years to heal. Sometimes, they are never able to, because the lies they were fed about themselves and about God were able to dig their hooks so deep that they find them nearly impossible to pull out. And the thing that can often make the 
difference between someone being lost in the darkness and finding the light of freedom and healing is the person who says, me too. There are so many people, more than we'd ever care to think about or admit, who have been wounded and abused by unhealthy, toxic churches. And in the majority of cases, the two most powerful things they can hear are that they're not crazy and they're not alone. And in the case of these allegations, that is exactly what these people are hearing. You're not crazy and you're not alone. Which leads me to the second powerful thing I have witnessed as a result of these abuse allegations becoming public. There is a sense of hope. One of the main reasons that I wrote my book, aside from the fact that I just needed to get it out, was that I was aware, simply from the conversations with those in closest proximity to me, that I was not alone in my experiences. I had no idea that between the time of writing it and having it released, my eyes would be opened to just how widespread these issues actually are. And now, with this article and the ensuing lawsuits, I am seeing so many people from all over the country and the world who are finding themselves in the exact same place I was. So many people harboring the hurts and wounds of their church experiences of the past, waiting with bated breath to see if justice will come for the wrongs that have been committed. And so far, these allegations, though born from terrible circumstances, are giving people hope that there will indeed be justice and that God will not leave any evil unpunished. Further still, it is opening their eyes to the potential of there being such a bigger, more powerful, and more beautiful picture of God, faith, and themselves than they have perhaps ever experienced before. And it's not brought about through structure, or rigidity, or legalism, or even doing more, trying harder, or devoting yourself deeper. It's simply through letting go and thriving in the freedom that Christ offers. No strings attached. And lastly, the third and final positive thing I am witnessing as a result of these allegations being public is the testament to the power of courage. I believe that in situations such as this, two of the biggest forces at play, creating perhaps the biggest power struggle, are courage and cowardice. For far too long, cowardice has been allowed to rule and reign in far too many spiritual communities, the very places where courage is most often preached and boasted. While cowardice can be present in some form or fashion in any church, when it finds its way into an unhealthy, abusive church, it is harnessed and utilized to commit and conceal the most heinous of evils. We have seen time and time again throughout history the corruption and immorality that cowardice not only incites but maintains and harbors. Speaking solely in the realm of churches and spiritual communities, the damage and destruction birthed from cowardice has tarnished both the name of Christianity and the name of God like nothing else. It can feel at times, especially in recent years, like the cowardice that is not only present but thriving and has been allowed to run rampant through our churches is just too far ahead and is a foe that is too powerful to be conquered. There have been many times where I've thought just as much, but then I'm reminded of the power of courage. 
I've come to think of the dynamic between cowardice and courage a lot like the fable of the tortoise and the hare. At the start of a race, cowardice may seem fast out of the gate. The swift advances and power plays of the corrupt enabled by cowardice may seem to leave all else in the dust. Courage, on the other hand, can be slow to start. And it's understandable. While cowardice is an easy vice, courage takes effort. And while cowardice thrives alone, courage gains its momentum from solidarity. And once that momentum is gained, the dwindling power of the selfishness of cowardice is no match against the shared strength of many. When many people come together in courage, those hiding behind the false shelter of cowardice don't stand a chance. Cowardice stands no chance against courage, no matter how far ahead it believes it's gotten. What's happening right now with these allegations and lawsuits with these churches, it's not some vengeful, gratuitous attack on the church, nor is it an attack on God, though that may be what some want you to believe. What's happening now is one thing and one thing only. It is courage catching up to cowardice. And it will surpass it. It always does. With that said, I want to make something very clear. Every church, healthy or toxic, has good people. And this church is no different. In fact, I would say the majority of the people at this church are good people. Perhaps all of them are good people. Because at the end of the day, what makes someone a good person? Is it their actions? Is it their intentions? Is it some mixture of both? I'm not going to sit here and give you a definitive answer to that question. But I will say this. It doesn't matter if your church has some good people, many good people, or all good people. If evils like the ones that are coming to light now are being allowed to take place, and the justice for those evils is being intentionally obstructed, the sum of that goodness amounts to nothing. At the time of recording this, it has been one week since this article came out, and it has been heartbreaking to see how many churches in this organization have not responded, and just what kind of responses have been given from the ones who have. There have been leaders telling their congregations that this is Satan trying to tear them apart. There have been midweek lessons and Sunday sermons all about unity and persecution, all while these churches are simultaneously trying to distance themselves from each other in efforts to protect and preserve their own church ministries. One leader even referred to this entire thing as, quote, just a few sad cases, and many statements, both verbal and written, emphasizing that this happened a long time ago by people who are no longer around or involved. If you truly believe that, I have some very sad news for you. This article is the tip of the iceberg. They are not just a few sad cases, and many of them did not take place a long time ago, but recently, by members and leaders that are still in their positions. This article was about five cases, and just in the last week since it came out. The number of victims that have come forward make that original number seem like child's play. At the speed at which things are going, by the time you're listening to this, I'm sure it'll be a whole different playing field. 
One of the things that I cannot believe about many of these churches' official statements is how many of them implore anybody else in their ministries who may have experienced any kind of abuse to report it directly to their own leadership rather than legal authorities. If you want a red flag and a clear sign that your church cares more about its own standing than its members, this is one of them. It is disheartening to see that these churches care so much about preserving their own status that they can share how sorry they are for the victims of abuse in one sentence, and in the very next sentence, ask that conversation surrounding it does not leave their immediate church circle. At the end of the day, no matter how sincere their thoughts and prayers may be, these churches would rather their wounded members not get the help that they need if it means putting their reputations and the reputations of their fellow leaders on the line. They tell us they care about us truly, yet would prefer that you come to them directly if you are experiencing any abusive behavior so that they can deal with it in-house, aka in a way that is as quiet as possible with as little repercussions as possible. At the end of the day, these are not genuine attempts to help people, but yet again, more ways to minimize, invalidate, and control their members. Interestingly enough, in the midst of recording this episode, an email was sent out to all of the members of one of the local regions of this church, explaining that their advice to only seek help from the church itself was not their intent and then revised their original statement to say that any members aware of any types of abuse should report it to the appropriate legal authorities. Now, I will not reprimand this revision, as I know the many people who will read this statement will benefit from this. But I will say this. Considering that the original wording of this statement is being presented as a wrongful interpretation of their actual intent, I find it a strange coincidence that each of the several other statements I have been able to read from many different churches in this organization managed to make the exact same error in communication. Another big thing that I've seen mentioned in many of these official statements is an attempt at our church organization to label all of these cases as terrible occurrences yet results of the way that things used to be in our church. You see, years and years ago, there was a very big, very public controversy in our church, resulting in a schism between its various organizations. Upon splitting off, our church vowed that we would be doing things differently. And for a while, it seemed that we were. But slowly, over the years, one step at a time, we revealed through our actions that we hadn't learned a thing, and that our roots as a church, the foundations upon which everything we believed was built were the exact same as they were back then. And now, with these allegations, I am witnessing my old church attempting to brush them aside as something that happened back before they changed. But there are many people who are now aware just how untrue that is. I'm sure you've heard the famous saying, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. In this particular case, I would like to change it slightly, to say that those who remember the past, but do not learn from it, are sure to repeat it. With that said, the question I pose is this. How long can churches like this 
continue the same cycle of bringing people in, hurting them, minimizing and invalidating their experiences when they attempt to seek help, and watching them leave while expecting these wrongs never to catch back up to them. How long will we allow these types of churches to commit these abuses in God's name? Skewing people's perception of God and teaching them to believe that he is the sum of all of our human error and wrongdoing, when in reality he is the one that can bring us healing from such things and justice to the ones who committed them. If you are or have ever been a part of a church or spiritual community like this, I just want to say I'm sorry. And I truly hope you believe me when I say, you're not crazy and you're not alone. You are not the sum of your hurts and pain. And you are definitely not the sum of somebody else's wrongdoing against you. It is true that churches are full of broken people and broken people make mistakes. However, it is not our mistakes that define us, but how we respond to the mistakes that we make. In the case of my old church, mistakes were made and wrongs were committed that were withheld and concealed in hopes that it would spare those responsible. And as a result, these wrongs continued to be committed because no responsibility was needed to be held. This system attacked and ostracized its victims while protecting its abusers, and for far too long was allowed to continue without answering for its crimes. But our God, being a God of love, is also a God of justice. And I promise you, justice will be dealt. I don't know what the future holds. To be honest, at the rate things are going, I don't know what next week holds, or tomorrow for that matter. But, as I did say earlier, I do know that in the end, Courage will always prevail over cowardice. And if we intentionally make the decision to embrace courage by both making courageous decisions ourselves and by validating and uplifting those making courageous decisions around us, those hiding behind cowardice simply won't have a chance. I'm not sure what the future holds for this church, but I hope that no matter what happens, it results in victims being validated abusers facing repercussions for their actions, and a spiritual environment that no longer caters to the abusive control and practices that have been in place for far too long. And I think that's all I gotta say. Like I said at the beginning, this was not an episode I had planned on making, but after everything happening this week, it was simply too important timely, and close to home not to talk about it. And though it is all such an unfortunate reality, I couldn't think of a more appropriate example of what happens when churches like the ones I talk about in my book fail to recognize, acknowledge, and repent from the wrongs they are committing. If you've made it this far in the episode, I want to thank you for listening. And I hope that no matter who you are, where you are, or how you came across this podcast, that this discussion offered you some valuable insights that will help you better navigate your own faith journey and be able to discern and help lead others away from toxic and abusive practices and ideologies and towards those that speak love, grace, and freedom. If you enjoyed the conversation, I encourage you to stick around. 
The official episode one of the Crumpled Papers podcast will be releasing later this month, where each episode we will be diving in and discussing the individual chapters of my book, speaking with guests and having great conversations about the topics and themes I write about of my own church experience growing up. And of course, if you have any questions or comments, or you just want to talk more about what I discussed in this episode, please reach out and send me an email at crumpledpaperspodcast at gmail.com. That email will be down below in the description, as well as both the podcasts and my personal social media. But until next time, I want to thank you for listening. My name is Austin Knoll, and this is the Crumpled Papers Podcast. Peace.